in this series in um, the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as I like to say in the Hebrew, it sounds like that, Habakkuk. And um, this is, a, it's a short book. It's only three chapters. And actually next week is our last message in our series in Habakkuk. And so today is a little unique because of the, the chunk of, of chapter three that we're going to be looking at. But I want to do a quick sort of overview of of where we are up to this point, especially because last because uh, next week is our last one. But Habakkuk is considered a minor prophet, not because he was short in stature or not because what he had to say was not important. It's because the book is a little shorter. And so there's a whole group of what we call minor prophets in the Old Testament. And he is one of them. But if you remember what's unique about Habakkuk is that unlike all of the other prophets, major and minor, he does not just receive a word from God of judgment on the sin of Israel to give to them, but he actually has a conversation with God. And it's a very real conversation. It's this back and forth between Habakkuk, God's servant, and God, where Habakkuk does not like what he sees going on around him. He doesn't like all of the immorality and injustice of his own people, the people of Judah, right, the the Jewish people, that he also sees it happening in the nations around him. So he is questioning God during the chaos of his time. And he is having this time of of just real raw questioning of God. God, why are you kind of seeming like an absentee father? Where, yes, your word says and your acts have said in the past that you know what's going on, but you don't seem to act like it. Because all this stuff is happening right under your nose and you're not doing anything about it. Have you ever been like that with God? Where it's either something going on in your own life or you, you scroll through your news feed and you're like, God, how much longer? How much longer? And those are the questions that Habakkuk is asking of God. God, how long do I have to wait? How long does our people have to wait? And he actually is asking God, which is unique as well. He is asking God for that judgment. He's saying, God, my people, the people I am a part of, I am ashamed to be a part of that right now. God, would you bring your righteous judgment on the people of Judah? Would you do that because they're out of control and there's all this chaos going on around me and, of course, in the the pagan nations as well? And, God, would you bring your judgment? Because you seem to not really care, God, because you're just letting this all happen. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do that too. Whether it's in our own lives or it's what's going on in the news or the world around us, maybe it's in our own churches and in our own country as well. And we say, God, how long? How long? And then as believers, of course, our blessed hope, we say, is the return of our Savior. And we say, how long until you return, because it doesn't seem like it can get much worse. But almost 2,600 years ago, Habakkuk says, God, it really can't get much worse. And it's been about 2,600 years. So God is teaching him, and God's response to Habakkuk is, if it seems like my response is delaying, just wait a little bit more. Remember that? We don't like to hear that, but that's what God says. And God actually tells Habakkuk, well, you think I'm not doing anything, but actually I am working, he says in, 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 in the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, I'm actually doing a work right now, and, and, and you can't yet see it. And even if I told you 
what the plan was, you still wouldn't believe it. Remember that? That's a key theme in Habakkuk. Where God says to him, you want to know like what's next? But what if God said that to you? You've been praying for that job or the healing in that relationship or a physical healing. And what if God said to you, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. We say, yes, that's all we need. Then we'll have peace and joy, right? Is that kind of how we act? But then what does God say to Habakkuk, which he is saying to us today as well? He says, even if I told you how I'm going to get you from here to here, he says, I will get you there. Even if I told you, you still wouldn't believe it because that's how amazing his plan is. So then he says, okay, Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you the plan. I'm going to use the Babylonians, this vile pagan people, to come and bring swift judgment on people. The judgment you want, I'm going to use Babylon. And then what does Habakkuk say? He says, for real, God? I can't believe it. You picture God just saying, I just told you you wouldn't believe it, and now you're not believing it. But it's the same thing with us. If he revealed it all to us, first we wouldn't need faith, right? Because doesn't he also then say to Habakkuk, probably one of the most famous verses from the Old Testament and in this book, the righteous shall live by their faith. Because that's what it comes down to for us as believers in the one true holy God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. It comes down to faith that we would simply trust and obey. That really is our call. You know, I like to say that we are on a need to know basis with God. And maybe right now we don't need to know. And that's okay. That's got to be okay with us. Now, it wasn't okay with Habakkuk, and he wrestled with God, and he was questioning God in the chaos. But you know what? I think God said that's okay. Because isn't he a big enough God to handle that? So we can question him in the chaos, and we can say, for real, God, this is what you're doing. Or for real, God, you're not doing anything about all of this that I see around me, all of the chaos. And so then finally, just to, to final bring that recap to a close, God says to Habakkuk, because remember Habakkuk complains about him using the Babylonians, and then God says, don't worry, I'm going to judge them too. And then this is where we come to chapter 3. Last week we saw just the first two verses of chapter 3, and it was a prayer, a very simple prayer of Habakkuk before he writes this poem. It's a song, and that's what we're going to look at today. It's a song, it's a poem. It's verses 3 to 16 of chapter 3 of Habakkuk. And the next week, just the last three verses. But today we're going to look at a poem. It's a song that Habakkuk writes after having wrestled with God and all these real questions. He comes to a place where he responds to God in song and in this poem of remembrance. So today is about remembering, remembering the awesome and mighty works of our God. And how do we respond, even after a time of wrestling with God? And last week I talked about um, interacting with his word. See, Habakkuk was having this conversation with God, so he was, in a real way, interacting with the very words of God. But how do we do that today, church? We open the Bible, don't we? We open his word and we interact with his word. We're told to be doers of the word and not just hearers. We are to take the word and interact with it. Remember I talked last week about the act of digestion? We talked a little bit about that, what that looks like. We start to chew it and we swallow it. There's this whole process of digesting food. Why? So we can get the nutrients to flow throughout our body. It's like what we do with the word of God. You can't just read it and skim over it and say, good, I'm done. I understand it. 
We are to let it ruminate, to let it marinate, to meditate, we might say, on it. Maybe read the same passage a few times through and let it sink in. It's like digesting food. Why? So we can get all of the truth, the nutrients, the spiritual nutrients out of the Word of God. That's interacting with the Word of God. So after all that is done, what's our response? So we're going to look at Habakkuk's response today. He responds by writing a poem. Did you ever write a poem? I remember I was an English major, and so, of course, I had to take a lot of poetry classes and, and write poems. And that, that was, I think, my least favorite part of being an English major, of reading and trying to understand poetry. I remember as a young college student reading poetry for, for real for the first time, and my professor starting to sort of explain the meaning, like some of these poems. And we started to read some of Shakespeare's sonnets, and we started to read some of these more obscure poets, because, you know, college professors like to like to show how, how smart they are, and they pull out these and they're so obscure, like the, the professor could say, this is what it means. And we'd just be like, okay, like, how do we know, right? But I just remember sitting there thinking, like, if this guy had something to say, this poet, why didn't he just say it? But of course we know there's a place for the artistry and the poetry. And we just sang some songs, right? And those songs, they're poems. There's poetry. There's poetry in their songs, and that's what this passage is, verses 3 to 16. Habakkuk writes a poem, but you know what? It was put to music, so it is actually a worship song. So, you know, as I was reading through it, I was like, well, what is it that we're going to look at today? What kind of angle are we going to take? And I noticed that three times in this passage, which I'll read in just a minute, and it will be up on the screen for you, there's this very interesting word that occurs, and we see it in other psalms. Remember I said that the book of Habakkuk kind of reads like a psalm, the way, the way that he writes it, because it's very unique interaction with God. And by the way, just a side note, if you ever want to I- improve your prayer life, read the psalms. The words, the phrases, the realness of interacting, David and others that wrote these psalms, it's the same thing with Habakkuk. See, so there's this word that comes up actually three times in our passage today, and it is the word selah, S-E-L-A-H, selah. So I want you to look at this image. This is a familiar image. Anybody know what that image is? No, you're not, you don't need a nose to make it look like a face. Anybody know what that image is? It's a pause button. It's a pause button. The stop is the square. The play is the triangle. This is a pause button. We see that in everyday life, don't we? We have them kind of all over the place. You have it on your remote, don't you? I mean, you can pause live events now. You can pause everything. Maybe you've said that to your kids sometimes. I would like this to work on my kids. Can we just pause them? Can we pause them for a second so we can just have a, a moment of quiet? But we have these buttons all throughout, and it's probably on your computer. It's on your laptop. It's on your remote. It's, it's all over. You play something on your phone and you can pause it. Just think of that for a second. What happens when we pause? What is even the, 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 the necessity of pausing? What's the reason for even having a pause button? I like to say this. You know, I think that Sundays, if we look at the next slide, I think Sundays should actually come with a pause button. That's what I think. I think Sundays should come with a pause button. Why? Because we have gathered in this place to pause for a moment, haven't we? We just had this week, whatever it looked like for you, a crazy week and 
Maybe you just had a, a very restful week and God blessed you with some good rest. And I think people are looking around saying, who had that kind of week? Who, who did that? <clears throat> but yet we come here on Sunday mornings. Like I said earlier in our opening, we come because the, the ancient church, the first disciples, uh, they got together on Sunday mornings to remember the risen Lord. Right? And that's why we do it on Sunday mornings. But yet we come here to, t- to pause Before we sort of start a new week, let's just pause for a moment. And pause and do what? Remember one of the themes in Habakkuk is waiting? God says to Habakkuk, if it seems like I'm taking too long, just wait a little bit longer. That's what God said. It's in the waiting. Remember we we discussed that. It's in that waiting. What do we do when we wait? See, as a church in this age of grace... We know that Christ came once. We celebrate that at, at Christmas, the incarnation. He came once and he brought salvation. But don't we also know that he told his disciples and he tells us that one day he will return for us. He will come back for his church. We often call that the rapture in, in sort of the, the, the sort of all of the end time events in the timeline that we believe that he will come back for his church because he promised that he would. So between his first advent and his second advent, and just before that he comes back for his church, what are we doing? We're waiting. We're waiting, but are we waiting patiently? Are we waiting faithfully? Are we waiting in obedience? Or are we kind of like always caught up in what Habakkuk was in the first two chapters and fighting and wrestling with God? Now that's okay because God says we can do that. But do we ever get to that point of peace and praise like Habakkuk does now. So Sunday should come with a pause button where we just pause everything. And especially when we get here to church. Because if you don't press that pause button on your mind and your heart, then what happens is you come in the doors and you're excited. And after a few minutes, maybe after a few songs, you say, okay, that guy's going to preach for a little while. I hope it's a short one today because I got, I got something cooking and we got this big football game today. And hey, I go home and I love to do that. And that stuff's good, but what are we doing while we're here? Are we able to press the pause button and say, God, how am I interacting with you and your word? Because we need this. It's good for our soul. And so that's what's happening here, that Habakkuk pushes the pause button and he says, okay, I get it, God. And I'm going to sing a song of praise to you. But even in this poem I'm about to read, Three times we see this word come up, Selah. And you know what it means? Pause. It's like a musical annotation. It's pretty much what we think it is. That, it, that it's like a, a um, it's something that the band might see on their music sheets, that here is where you pause. It's like a dramatic pause, but we pause for a purpose to reflect on what just happened. See, that's what we do when we pause, right? We are to reflect on what just happened... And how does it affect what's going to happen? And so in this, you're going to see the word Selah come up. And it's important. And so we read it even when we read Scripture because it's actually an annotation for whoever was directing the praise band at the time, of the choir, to say, sing this, and there's going to be a pause. And maybe a key change to bring some more dramatic effect for what's about to happen next. But let us not skip over the Selah. Don't skip over the pause. Because then you will be continually on play. And then what happens is you move from play 
to fast forward. Do you ever feel like your life is just fast forward? And then maybe we just need to push the pause button. So here's what it says. Habakkuk 3, 3 to 16. Again, this is a poem. It'll be a little hard to kind of grasp, to understand. I'll kind of just give you an overview when I'm done, and we'll pick out a a, a few of the, the nuggets of truth that God might have for us today, okay? Here's what Habakkuk says, this song that he wrote. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and he measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. How's that for a poem? Now, at first sight, you might be like, well, it doesn't even rhyme. What kind of poem is this? There's all kinds of poetry. But here you can tell, hopefully, that Habakkuk is pouring out his heart. But let me just give you sort of an overview and a little bit of context. And then we'll look at some things that that God is, I think, trying to show us today. So here's a little bit of background. So at the very beginning, he says, God came from Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran, and then he says, Selah. So two lines, and then he pauses. But here's why he says that. You see, Taman and Mount Paran, really what we need to know is they are sort of symbolic. They are, were actually real places and regions, sort of desert regions, south and particularly east of Jerusalem, right? So we can all picture where Jerusalem is. But this area was a desert area, But it was south and it was particularly east 
of Jerusalem where he was. So you can picture he's sort of standing on the ramparts or standing sort of on a high tower and he's looking south from Jerusalem and east. And here's what he's doing, church. He's simply remembering the mighty works of God, particularly when God came and rescued the people of Israel from uh, Egypt. It's the Exodus. So historically, this is what he's remembering. So those places, Taman and, and Mount Paran, are actually in some ways related to Mount Sinai. Remember what happened at Mount Sinai? Where Moses went up and got the law, the Ten Commandments, right? That God did an awesome work for his people. But there's also this thing that, that Habakkuk is remembering what God did for his ancestors in, in Egypt, where he took them out of slavery. But how did God do it? In a mighty way, there was pestilence, he talks about. How God did these mighty works. You remember the pillar of fire and, and the cloud by night and then the parting of the Red Sea. You remember later after that, he parted the, the, the Jordan River. God is doing these amazing things. So throughout this poem, Habakkuk is remembering God. Yes, you did these things. I remember hearing about this. I remember all of your good works now. You are the same God who seems like he's waiting to to bring justice and to do away with the immorality. But God, I, I guess I will trust you because I remember what you did. See, that's the context here. So he's writing this song. Listen, it's a song of remembrance. He's remembering. Some of you probably journal, right? You probably journal, and maybe in your journaling you write little notes or, or poems or maybe even a song or something. And, but why do you write a journal? Yes, you kind of let it flow out. It's good to write it down. But part of it is to remember. To remember the goodness of God. What has God done for me? So maybe in the future you can sort of go back and say, yes, I forgot how good God was. Because don't we need that, church? Especially in times of difficulties and trials where it seems like, oh, God will never rescue me from this situation. But what we need to do is kind of remove ourselves from that for a moment and remember. Remember the good works of God. That's why we pause. See, he put this, this word Selah to pause right after the first two lines. So he's writing and he's saying, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Power. And remember, he's, he's picturing when God came up from the south and the east to do a good work for the people of Israel. But right after he says that, he says, pause, Selah. He's like, God came. God did that. The Holy One from that holy mountain. Hold on. He says, that's what he says. Pause right there. Let's just reflect on that for a moment. God did an awesome work because he's an awesome God. He's a very powerful God. So then he goes on to use words. We won't look at all of them, but he goes on to say his splendor covered the heavens. His brightness was like the light. I'm just kind of skipping. Before him went pestilence. He stood and measured the earth. But then look at what happens. Then he moves. Again, just brief overview. Verses um, 8, 9, 10. Then we get the picture of the God of battle. What he is saying, Habakkuk, I think he's saying, God, you're going to fight my battle for me. Yes, you're going to allow the Babylonians to bring judgment. We're about to go into exile. I get it. 
But thank you for, for reminding me and telling me that you are a righteous God. You will judge the Babylonians too. This is what the light is here. That he is going to come and judge the evil Babylonians. And he's going to come from the south. He's going to come from the east just like he did the last time. But why is that significant? What happens? What comes up in the east? I mean, we say it, right? It doesn't really rise. But that's from our perspective. Again, this is his perspective. So from our perspective, we live near the beach, right? So we get this awesome opportunity. We go, we get there early, and we we get to watch the sunrise. So what happens when the sun starts to rise? Like just before it even peaks up over the horizon, it starts to light up the sky, doesn't it? Before you even see the actual sun, don't you see its rays? It's light, the effect of the sun. And then as it comes up, you see a little bit of the sun. You start to see its power rising and then more of the horizon, and then more, more and more of the sky is illuminated. And then everything around you, you can start to see it. And then after a couple of minutes, all of a sudden you see the whole sun in its glory. See, that is what Habakkuk is is envisioning when he's standing there saying, God, you did this before. You came from the east and from the south, and and you you saved your people, and you're going to do it again. That's how awesome you are. See, he describes him like the sun. That it says his brightness was like the light and rays flashed from his very hand. Do we ever think of that? We look at the sun and God is holding that in his hand. God's allowing that to happen. But in many ways, God is like the sun. I mean, look, we, we get to enjoy the warmth and the beautiful sunlight and the effect of all that sun. But you ever just stop and think and pause, say la, we pause and say, How powerful is that sun? What if we were to get closer? What would happen? We would burn up. You know how powerful and bright and hot the sun is? You can't even look at it. You're sitting at the beach, right? And you can't even look. This is why we're wearing the sunglasses. You can't even stare at it because it's so strong. It's like God. He is so holy and pure and perfect and mighty and awesome that we can't even gaze upon him. And what happened with Moses when he came down from that mountain? He sort of had this glow about him, right? And this veil. And But the idea is that's how awesome God is. And so Habakkuk is simply writing a poem. It's a song, and he's just like, God, you're going to do that again. Remember he prayed, and he said, God, do your works again in my day. And he's remembering, yeah, that's what he did in the past. He's going to do it again. But not only is he rising like with the power of the sun, but he's going to fight my battle for me. He's going he's gonna to fight the battle against the Babylonians. Let him come and take me into captivity. Churches, it's like we say, okay, let that person make fun of me. Let that person slander me. There's an opportunity and a time to stand up for who we are and what we believe in, but we say, God, you're going to fight my battle for me. You're going to fight my battle. And then ultimately, spiritually speaking, we know that the victory is won. The war is won. There may be battles every day. But God says, let me fight those battles for you. All you have to do is trust me and walk in obedience. Like he tells Habakkuk, he says, just wait a little longer. He says, the righteous will live by their faith. So just have faith. I've done it before. I'll do it again. Church, right now you might be struggling with something. And I'm just encouraging you, remember what the good God has done in the past for you. Because he's the same God that he is today. And he might heal you. He might answer your prayers in a very different way. And maybe it'll take a lot longer this time. But God simply says, just wait a little bit longer. Because I am at work. 
And he says, even if I told you how I was going to do it, you still wouldn't believe it. So don't even try. Just, just trust me and obey. So anyway, Habakkuk's writing this awesome poem and, poem, and he starts to use words like this. He says, God, you, you stripped the sheath. He says, you split the earth. I'm just skipping through. He says, you marched, you crushed, you pierced, you trampled. How about that? Verses like, uh, it was verses basically 8 through 15. He is picturing God as a warrior coming before him in battle. And he's envisioning this and he's writing this poem. This is what you did and God, you're going to do this for our enemy. You're going to do this against our enemy. Church, we have an enemy today, don't we? We have an enemy today, and he's got a name, and he's powerful. God is universally and ultimately sovereign and in control always. He always has been, he always will be. But going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Satan, the enemy of God and our our enemy, when he deceived Adam and Eve, he usurped that control that God had given to Adam and Eve to have dominion over the world and to worship him. And God's allowing it to still continue until Jesus comes back and culminates all things and makes all things new. And we we look forward to that. But until then, our enemy is called the God of this age, small g, and and he he is the one who has certain control of this. When we say world, this world that we live in. But yet we know at that very moment... When Satan usurped that authority from Adam and Eve, do you remember what God did? He made a promise. He promised a Redeemer. And we believe, we sit here and believe that Redeemer was Jesus Christ and no other. And he did come and offer deliverance. And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes back to the Father and gets reconciled to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' words, not me. So Jesus said the only way to be reconciled to our God, the creator, is through him. And what did he do? He died. See, blood had to be shed. But that was always God's plan, church. When I said that he had promised a redeemer because Adam and Eve had sinned, do you remember what Adam and Eve did? And this is so crucial. We don't want to miss this. When Adam and Eve sinned and they ate of that forbidden fruit, right? What did they do? It says first that they recognized they were naked, and then it said they covered themselves with fig leaves, and they tried to hide, right? But then it says that God went looking for them, and he said, where are you? God knew where they were, but he was asking, saying, what did you do? See, that is what separates, therein just separates our understanding of God and Christianity, the relationship with God through Christ, against every other world faith system. Every other world faith system is men trying to get back to God by their good deeds. But in Christianity, our understanding of the God of the Bible is God comes back for us. He is seeking after us like he sought after Adam and Eve in the garden. And he seeks after them. But then, of course, there has to be judgment because there was sin. There was disobedience. And so he exiles them from the garden. Remember what God did before he did, before he kicked them out of the garden? He covered them. With animal skin. You don't want to gloss over that. So how would God have gotten animal skin to properly cover Adam and Eve? Would have sacrificed an animal. There would have been blood shed. See, the whole time, it's part of God's plan 
that blood, the shedding of blood, is what covers the sin. So it was the animal sacrifices we read about in the Old Testament of the law, and the priests would give that once a year on behalf of all the people. And then God said, I am sending that promised Redeemer, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said, to once and for all be the final sacrifice. His blood will cover all. Right? We know that our Jewish friends celebrate the Passover about the same time that we're celebrating Easter and and the death and resurrection of Christ. And they're remembering how God, through Moses, said, hey, uh, slaughter the lamb, the perfect, you know, uh, unspot, unblemished lamb, and put put the, the lamb's blood over the doorpost so that the angel of death, so death will pass over you. What does that blood represent? The blood of Christ. So if we receive that gift from God... The blood of Christ as that free gift of salvation. Then God looks at us and he declares us righteous. Doesn't make us righteous. We are declared righteous. We are justified before God, see? But it's all because of that blood of Christ. It's always been God's plan. And so I bring all up to say that Habakkuk is writing this amazing poem, this song. And throughout it, he is picturing God as a rescuer and a redeemer, one who will fight our battles, one who is awesome over all of creation, like the power of the sun. It's so holy, we can't even see him. But we can benefit from all that he does. And so, to sort of wrap that all up, church, let's remember this this passage is Habakkuk remembering what God has done in the past. He's remembering what God has done. He reflects on the very presence of God at the beginning of the poem. And then he talks about the very power of God over all of creation and how all the earth trembled at his presence. So it was talking about the presence of God, the power of God. But then he pauses. Let's reflect on God's presence and his power. And then in 12 to 15, he reveals his plan that he's going to come and fight the battle his plan based on his promise to judge the babylonians see habakkuk is saying god you promised you said you would judge the babylonians so he knows he has a plan based on the promise because of his presence and his almighty power see i used all those p words uh hopefully you caught on that Uh, i thought it was pretty good and then verse 16 we see habakkuk reflects on his position before god Okay. But anyway, so he writes this poem, and a poem has a flow, right? All those classes in in English were coming back to me. And so there's this presence of God, then his power, and he's like, you got a plan, God. And and then he reflects in in verse 16 on his position. And he he says in verse 16, he goes, I'm I'm trembling before you, God. I, I hear all these things. My body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound as he's sort of envisioning what God's about to do again. And, and he goes, my legs tremble beneath me. But then he finally ends with this. But I think I just need to quietly wait for you to do your thing. So there's that reflection of waiting once again. But church, how does this affect us? Let us never stop worshiping God. We write songs in our heart. We sing songs to God. John 4 says that God is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, that we would write songs in our heart of thankfulness to God. 
You know, Psalm 40, I love, I, I mention this psalm a lot, one of my favorites in the first three verses of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. Just see how this flows. He inclined to me, he heard my cry. He lifted, he lifted me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock. He made my footsteps firm and secure. And what did he do? He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God, so many will see and fear and put their trust in him. That's what Habakkuk did. Habakkuk said, God, in the past you rescued us. You lifted us up out of the pit. Can you do that again? Because I have a new song to sing because of your goodness. And it's a song of praise to you. But why? So that others can hear this song and read this poem and come to know you and to worship you also. But there's another song, a psalm that I love as well. It's Psalm 137. It's a beautiful psalm. There's actually this, um, uh, this very well-known uh, play called Godspell, and some of you might have seen it, and there's a famous song in there. It's called On the Willows, and it's a beautiful, beautiful reflection, and it's a song of remembrance. But look at what and that song is taken right from this psalm. Look at what Psalm 137 says. Just if you can picture it again, it's very poetic. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. They're like stringed instruments. For there, our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Think about that. They were in exile. It was basically the worship team, the worshipers, had given up hope. It said we were in exile, and they were reflecting it, saying, we took our guitars, our instruments that we would use to lead our people in worship, and we hung it up on the branches of the willow tree. I love the willow tree, but you look at the willow tree, it seems so peaceful, but yet it's kind of sad, right? And they're saying, in a poetic way, we hung up our instruments because we kind of gave up. It says, those that are captors or tormentors, they even said, sing us a song. Sing us a song of Zion. Zion meaning Jerusalem and their homeland. And then they say in verse 4, how can we sing the songs of of the Lord. How can we sing these songs of Zion when we're in exile? Church, we are a people in exile. We really are. We are a people in exile in many ways. We might say, yeah, I feel like it in my country. And, and in some ways it's true. Because the landscape of our nation has changed. Where it's even more difficult, with no excuses, but more difficult to even talk about God. And to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, I should say. So we might feel more and more like exiles. Like missionaries who go to a foreign land might feel like that. But yet we look around and we see that. But you know what? We are in a foreign land because this, this world, is not our true home. God says that we are His children. And we are spiritual people, spiritual beings. And that is how we are reconnected to God spiritually. And so we look forward to being rescued and redeemed finally. To have all of that come to culmination when Jesus returns. We have been reconnected to God, but we know there is coming that day when He will return for us. 
and bring us to our true home. Church, don't we long for that? Isn't that what gives us hope? Because it should. Because in many ways we are exiles in a foreign world, a foreign land. And we look forward to that day. But what do we do while we're in that foreign land? We wait faithfully and we trust and obey. It's what God expected of Habakkuk. And he said, you're about to be captured by the Babylonians and I expect you to trust and obey. And Habakkuk had this amazing back and forth with God and he came to this point where he wrote a song. He wrote a song of remembrance. So church, here's my word for today. Let us not be like Let us not be like those who led the people in worship in Psalm 137 and gave up hope. Just said, how can we sing these songs of remembrance when we're so far away from our true home? Because we have people that are oppressing us and we have things that are coming against us each and every day. We're even forgetting these songs. Church, let's never forget the songs of remembrance. Not only songs that we sing or like we're about to sing, but Songs that come from our heart, whether we put them to music or not, whether we write them down in our journals. Psalm 40 says that God has put a new song in us that we would then proclaim that song and, in a sense, sing that song for the world so that they would know the goodness of God. But it starts here when we get together on Sunday mornings. We push pause and we say, God, help us to remember. So we encourage each other in our faith and our walk with Him. And we say, this is a tough journey, right? But let us never forget the goodness of our God and His good works. Like Habakkuk is envisioning what God did in the past, He's going to do it again. Didn't He pray that? God, do it again. Let us pray that as well. Do it again, God. But would You help us never to forget, but to always remember. So we sing those songs of Zion, so to speak. Remembering our homeland. Remembering the goodness of God. Whatever that looks like for you, let us remember, church. Let us be ourselves a song of remembrance. But that we would always push pause so we can help ourselves and others to remember.